Okay, welcome back to Knowledgeable and Novice. I am your host and course instructor, Addison, and I am the knowledgeable one. And sitting here today with me yet again is the novice. Hello. Casey, welcome back. Thank you. You had so much fun last time that you really wanted to talk about it again. That's right. I know. I know last time I promised that Dr. Coloma would be on this one, but unfortunately his schedule does not permit it. So we're going to do it next time. And so we're going to move some things around because I really want to talk about equity with him. And this episode today, we're going to talk about principles of trauma-informed practice. So let's dive into it. Go ahead, Casey. You can start with the (laughs) principles of trauma-informed practice. (laughs) I'll I'll defer to you. (laughs) I'm just teasing you. Okay. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about it. So There are, I think in the last, I think last time I talked about this, we shared or I shared that there are multiple names, phrases, ways that you can refer to trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, trauma-responsive, et cetera. So in the same way that there are lots of phrases, there are also a few kind of key players or key organizations who have defined what trauma-informed really means. Um, let me just go ahead and turn off my email since it's making sounds as we're recording. So first of all, um, one of the number one organizations that has kind of defined trauma-informed care long before it was an educational buzzword is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They are more widely known as SAMHSA, and they define six principles of trauma-informed care. So their six are safety, trustworthiness, and transparency. That's one. Uh, Peer support, collaboration, and mutuality, empowerment, and choice. And the last one is cultural, historical, and gender issues. Okay. So those are kind of largely the ones that most people know and cite and, and use in lots of different fields, especially social work, oftentimes education. Um, but what you'll notice is that They're comprehensive, and yet I think something is definitely lacking. There's something missing for sure, and that is kind of this idea of equity. Um, And so I would argue that equity needs to be kind of the foundation that all of these pillars are built on. But then there's also trauma-sensitive practices, as I said, trauma-responsive. Paul Gorski, who is definitely someone to know and look up and to spend time reading, he is an incredible scholar and teacher. He writes about four commitments to equity-based trauma-informed practice, and so a little bit different from SAMHSA, he really tries to center the equity process or the concept of equity in trauma-informed schools. And so he his four commitments are, one, attend to the practices, policies, ideologies, and aspects of institutional culture that traumatize children at school. So basically saying, like, recognize and fix the fact that schools cause trauma. Two, enhance a trauma-informed approach that accounts for systemic oppression. Three, dislodge hyperpunitive cultures and end reactive rule flinging. And then the fourth is to address the traumas that educators face at work, especially those who speak up for equity and justice. So I really, really love those. Unfortunately, those are newer to the field. Um, and so we're kind of waiting on him and others to like create more of a comprehensive framework under those uh, commitments. But The practices that I, or pillars, I guess I sometimes call them, that I most use when teaching, when being in the classroom, when talking to teachers, when sharing about trauma-informed practice are developed by my friend and thought leader, Alex Chevron Vanette. You know, I love her so much and talk to her almost every day. Um, And so these are the four pillars that she argues are necessary for trauma-informed practices in schools. Connection, predictability, flexibility, and empowerment. So let's break 
break them down and talk about what they could look like and what they mean in the classroom. But before I go on, do you have any questions? Do you, is there anything that you're just like, you're done, you want to know? Not at the moment, but maybe when you keep going. Okay. Are you just so, so excited to hear about these four pillars? Yes. I knew it. Okay. All right. So let's talk about connection. So any teacher knows, and I think I've said this to you before too, that kids have a very solid BS reader, that they know when they're when we as adults are being authentic and when we're not. So establishing relationships, which we talk a lot about in class, is a lot more than just having lunch with the teacher or asking a kid what they like to do when they go home from school. Relationship building and connection is a full-blown mindset. It's a deliberate choice that permeates every single thing we do in the classroom. So here are some examples of choices that we can and should make to connect with our students in the classroom as much as possible. The first one is very obvious, but I'm going to say it, and it is to genuinely like all of our kids. I just finished All About Love by Bell Hooks, and she writes a lot about love and care and how action, how love is an action and a choice, and genuinely liking our students has to be included in how we connect and build relationships with them. Pronounce their names correctly. See them as children. There's some research that says, especially for Black students, that they are often some seen in classroom spaces as older than they really are. Like, recognize that a seven-year-old is a seven-year-old um, and not capable of manipulation or coercion or are some of the things that I sometimes hear educators speak about when it comes to kids. After all, they are kids. <laughs> Um, honoring them for who they are, learn about their culture, bring in books and content that's actually meaningful to the students. That's a great way to connect with them. Literally get on their level. And I know this is hard in the pandemic when we're doing things virtually, but in the classroom, this means I would often encourage and invite teachers to physically get down when speaking to students because I think even just the height difference and the power dynamic that exists, like we know there's a differential of power in the classroom. And so any way that we can disrupt that is going to help us connect with kids. Um, greet them at the door. Greet them when you see them. Smile. I know that's such a silly thing to think about, but like sometimes teachers get really stressed. And I know this for myself personally, it's really hard, but like even just small things like smiling can go a long way. Welcoming students back into the space after harm has been done. I know, again, we're all online, but like in the traditional classroom setting, when a student gets sent out or leaves for whatever reason, whether it's disciplinary, whether it's to take a break. Um, after harm has been done, like this one is so necessary of like, I care for you. Nothing you will do will ever change my mind about that. And you are welcome back at any time, not making it conditional. Um, because again, like saying, I care for you, I care about you only goes so far. And so we really need to demonstrate that connection in practical actions and in nonverbal ways. It has to be threaded into everything that we do because connection too is really the underpinnings of safety and feeling safe in the classroom. How do you know, like, I don't know what the like line is on how much you get to know your kid, you know, like ask, how was your weekend or how was, you know, yes, I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. 
Yeah, because that yeah, that's a really good question. Because that kind of like not be intrusive, basically. right? And I think boundaries is an important conversation to have too when thinking about connection. I mean, I think that you read the signs, like you you kind of let the kid let decide. Yeah. yeah, like I never would probe or ask questions or like if I could tell in reading their nonverbal cues that a student just really wasn't up for talking to me. Like I would never push or continue to ask. Yeah. I think being really self-aware and in tune with the child is an important skill that I don't know that we necessarily teach or can explicitly ask people to do, but it comes with time, I think. Mm -hmm. And also making a lot of mistakes and owning it and apologizing and saying like, hey, so sorry. Like I could tell earlier you didn't want to talk and I pressed you and I apologize for that. I think modeling those mistakes and and owning that we're humans too um, is an important piece. I'm glad you asked that because boundaries, that's a really good question. And not being intrusive. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's probably, probably varies per student, I'm sure. Definitely. I just don't want to share much. Oh, like I think about, I'm not going to name them, but I'm thinking about one of my kids from years ago who literally could have told me every single thing about her life and then some because she wanted to and was so stoked to share with her teacher. And then another who didn't even want me to know their middle name, even though it was listed on their report card. (laughs) Like there, yeah, there's ranges of kids and and the comfort. And I think too, talking about consent, and we're going to get into that too, can be important. Like what are you willing to share and what are you comfortable sharing? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so the next pillar is predictability. So trauma is very unpredictable. Experiencing a traumatic event, having a trauma response is unpredictable. You might not know or be able to predict or control. And so any way that we as classroom teachers can be more predictable will support our students overwhelmingly because trauma and traumatic events take away control and predictability. So we want to make our classrooms predictable spaces. So here are some ideas with respect to predictability that we can consider. So one is writing the agenda or the schedule on the board every day. If you're in Google Classroom, Canvas, whatever it is, like on my PowerPoints for class, I always have the agenda um, just so that we know what to expect, when to expect it posting a weekly or monthly calendar, updating it frequently so that students know what to expect. When I taught middle school, I had one whiteboard that was just a giant calendar. I used blue painter's tape and I would redo it every month and I would do it in homeroom and the kids would just sit there staring at me like, oh, what's coming up on Friday? What are we going to... But then knowing that the visual was there, scheduling tests on that whiteboard, having any sort of like events or disruptions to the normal day can help with predictability. Uh, providing a physical space in the classroom to emotionally regulate and calm down. So things like a calming corner, a Zen desk, a cool down chair, um, so that students can know and have a predictable spot to go to when they're in their feelings. And I want to talk about cool down areas and restorative practices later on in the podcast. I think that's its own uh, episode, mini episode in itself. Avoid classroom drastic, if I could talk, avoid drastic classroom transformations or mass overhauls of setup. There's this thing on the internet where teachers like to um, like completely transform their space where they like turn it into a doctor's office or like a zoo. And it's really um, stressful for our kids' brains, especially students who are trauma affected to leave a classroom one day and then to come back and have it look completely different and look like a beach or, you know, an army 
uh, I don't have like a military. Oh, there's so many on the internet, but that's really unpredictable. And so if you want to do transformations, if you want to make changes to your classroom, I always try to tell my students ahead of time and give them a pretty good amount of time to kind of cope with it, think about it, ask questions about it, help in the process, um, just so that it can be more predictable. Respond predictably to behaviors that arise. We're going to talk a lot about that. Schedule frequent breaks. So like even in our class, our weekly lecture, I'm scheduling breaks and you always know you're going to have 10 minutes um, and keeping that consistent can really help. Set the scene for upcoming events and experiences by saying things like, in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to talk in a group or in an hour, we're going to transition and move our desks to be working in pods. Um, I always end the day of an overview of what the kids can expect the next day. So as we're leaving and even in my class now, it's like, okay, the, you know, to wrap up, here are the things that we're doing the next time I see you. Here are the things to be prepared with um, ending each session or each meeting or each class day with that can really help kids kind of like pre-plan and know what they can expect. Um, and then assign seats or don't. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about seat assignments. I always assign seats because my students were elementary schoolers and they needed a predictable spot every day and they needed a human to say like, this is where your stuff goes. But then also predictability can also be allowing kids to sit in the same row or put their backpack in the same place or keep their binders or their notebooks in a specific spot every day. Um, so it can look different for different groups. Visually post and teach and review and monitor and reinforce expectations all the time. So just like I have our class norms that I do at the beginning of every class meeting, anytime in at any grade level that there was something going on, whether it was group work, sitting on the carpet, taking a test, doing a district assessment, I always had the expectations posted visually. We would review them. We would monitor. We would check in on them. We would reflect together as a group. How did it go? What could we improve? Um, so that the expectations were clear and then kids could respond predictably. Like they knew that the expectation was voices off during a test. And so then they knew, oh, it's very predictable that I'm going to need to be silent for the duration of this assessment. And then establish really, really clear routines for, for parts of the day that can be really stressful or we call it dysregulating. Um, so entering, exiting, turning in papers, sharpening pencils, there's like a rule of five, these early five procedures that are the most important and cause the most stress. So having them be very predictable and not saying like, on Mondays, you're going to get your pencil from over here. And then the rest of the week, you have to hold on to your pencil and bring it from home and take it from your backpack. Like always having systems in class um, to be as predictable as possible can really help kids. Like I always turn my papers in here. I always put my laptop charge, you know, in here. So that's predictability. I would have appreciated that <laughs> as a young person. Really? Were your classrooms not predictable? Well, not really. Yeah. I remember, I think it was fifth grade that our seats would just change randomly. And she like never, they never gave you a heads up. No. And you just come in one day. And like, oh, like the desk would be in a different arrangement oh, or something. the teacher would move the desk. Yeah, the desk. Or we would just have different uh, seats, which yeah. I was like, oh, man, like I was getting used to that. I like that spot. You know what's My funny? My friend was sitting next to me or something. Yeah. I even adding on to that, thinking about the seats changing, I mm – -hmm at the beginning of the year would tell my students, I did this every year, that I changed seats on the first day of every new month. So when a new month changed, it would be a new monthly calendar and new seats. And so like, I remember coming back after, I think it was like spring break or something, which was in early March in California. And 
we had missed the first of the month. And so I didn't give new seats right when we came back. And all my kids were like, what the heck, Miss Duane? I'm supposed to have new seats. It's the first of the month. So they learned to like really rely on that. So, but even having that added piece of like a set monthly time that you're going to change seats, post grades, mm-hmm. send home notes. I don't know. It's It just really helps. So I think a common misconception is, I'm telling, we're saying, okay, be predictable. And then we immediately follow it up by saying, be flexible. And I want to note that this is not an either or, but a both and. Like we can both be predictable with how we assign seats and where we have our pencil sharpening station. And we can also practice flexibility. So psychology tells us that the trauma impacts are not linear. And so we have to be flexible in the classroom. And so yes, posting schedules and having frequent breaks and responding predictably to behaviors is all very important. And at the same time, we have to be flexible within that posted schedule or within the seats if need be. And so there there are some examples of this. Interestingly enough, though, just as a note about trauma, in psychology is that cognitive flexibility and psychological flexibility are actually two areas that are most affected when trauma occurs. So practitioners are frequently working to improve these two types of flexibility in, in trauma-affected people. And so there's lots and lots of academic articles talking about the importance of flexibility when trauma is involved. We have to be flexible. We have to respond and and be cognizant of this need for flexibility. And so my question is, why should our classrooms be any different, right? If we have trauma-affected students, if one-third of our kids have experienced at least one trauma, we too can practice flexibility. So here are some suggestions for flexibility and bringing more flexibility into the classroom space in addition to the connection, the predictability that we just talked about. So including choices in classroom activities and learning tasks. So instead of saying today we are all going to do this one thing, you might say here's a menu of three options. Choose the one that makes most sense for you. Or like in the elementary setting, I often had a list of five, you know, like must do's and they could choose on what day during reading small groups they were going to do which activity as long as they had all five done by the end of the week. Um, So just in addition, including choices in the way that they're learning and the way they're choosing to demonstrate mastery is really important. Consider making homework optional. That's a great one. I am very anti-homework. We can talk about that at another time. There is no research to support the idea that homework impacts or uh, improves in academic achievement at all. And so I think the stress of having homework, God, homework could be its own podcast. And it's Okay, I'm going to table that because we can talk about that later. Include choices in calming tools, coping strategies, breathing techniques, any of those things that you help them learn and understand to regulate their body. Like instead of saying, we're all going to do the triangle breath today, maybe saying, okay, I'm going to teach you triangle breath. But remember last week we learned star breathing. So if you'd rather do that, you're welcome to. This is our breathing time. Um, Allow for breaks, which is also, you know, predictability is asking us to schedule frequent breaks. Flexibility is, is also saying take breaks. I'm a really big fan of breaks, of pausing the lessons to regulate, um, to take a moment to check in. Sometimes I would just read the room and recognize like no one is taking in anything I'm saying right now. So we're going to do a brain break. We're going to take a moment. We're going to take three minutes, be flexible with timing. Um, And remember, too, that there's a lot of research that tells us that students cannot learn 
if they are stressed. They cannot access their prefrontal cortex if stress is in their body and if the stress hormones have flooded their system. And so taking a few moments to calm down the body, the brain, to downregulate our nervous system, it's not impacting instruction. It's actually helping because our kids weren't learning during the time that they were stressed anyways. And so trying to push through is oftentimes does more harm than taking a moment, checking in, doing a breathing activity, moving our bodies, taking a lap, whatever that might mean. Differentiate instruction as best we can. I, I think that's something that's commonly taught in a lot of our programs. Um, include project-based learning and units of inquiry. Those were some of my favorite moments in the classroom was when we got to apply and, and give kids choices and allow them really to um, make their thinking flexible about solving real-world problems. And then the last one that Alex says, and this is, oh, wait, right before I get to that one, another one is provide opportunities for retakes and makeups. So a lot of times people will say, like, this is the firm deadline. This is your score. And flexibility tells us that we need to be a little bit more flexible in the way we're thinking about assessments and about our grading and all of that. Like we, in the same way that I am open to unlocking a quiz that someone previously took or giving extra time on a reading reflection if it's asked, like, we have to be able to entertain that for our kids as well. And the last one, as I said, this is my favorite one from Alex, where she says that flexibility means we need to be a human. And that means to remember that our students need to see us as people too. So we need to model our own appropriate coping skills. We need to model and demonstrate times when we are feeling stressed and how we want to regulate through that we want to apologize when we've made mistakes and share about who we are and our lives to build connections, but also to show them that we are humans, we are capable of being flexible as well. All right, last one. The last and fourth pillar is empowerment. So because power trauma disempowers, because lack of control is inherently associated with traumatic experience, we have to foster a sense of self-efficacy in the classroom. We have to encourage and empower our students. So empowering students is not something that's often written into the curriculum explicitly, but it is arguably one of the most important things that our students need. So how do we do this? Well, for starters, we can make our classroom student-centered. We can ask questions like, is our physical layout designed with and for our students? Do our visuals, our read-alouds, our activities, our real-world connections, do they directly tie to the students in our space? We can also talk less. We can move away from being that like quote unquote sage on the stage and really look at our role as being facilitators of learning, giving the students their opportunity to use their voice to, to guide their own learning. So again, in encouraging student voice, this could mean giving surveys. I use Google surveys all the time as a classroom teacher. I did paper surveys with my younger kids. It would be like a smiley face or a sad face that they would circle next to a question that I would read aloud. Elicit feedback as much as possible and as much as is capable during you know the time that we also have to do 900 million other things. But ask hard questions and then be okay with what students share. Part of empowering students is allowing them the space to tell the truth and to talk about what they like and don't like without our egos and the adults in the space getting in the way. So make changes based on the feedback. If a student says, I really don't like the pencil sharpening 
procedure in our classroom, like work with kids to understand what and ways we can make it better. Um, because if we ask for feedback, but then we don't enact any changes based on that, then what message are we sending? Like, oh, we actually don't want your feedback. We're doing this to check something off the list. So let go of control that sometimes we as teachers so badly want to hold on to and, and actually like do something based on the feedback that you are soliciting and that you receive. So again, considering student choice, implement restorative practices. I really want to talk about that more. Eliminate the savior mentality. We talked about this in class, this idea that we really are not here to save kids. We are here to foster their development and step back as they learn and as they grow and empower them in doing that. And then the last piece is just to model consent, to talk about consent, and then empower students to do the same. If you don't know um, the Instagram account teaching to transform or transform, I'll, I'll add it to the podcast notes, but she talks a lot, her name's Liz, and she talks a lot about consent and how to how to teach consent, what consent really is, how at any age, any grade level, students are capable of having conversations around what they're comfortable sharing, what they're comfortable with, like in their own physical space. Um, and that's really important to empowering students is like giving them the tools to be able to advocate for themselves and, and choose what they consent to. All right. So this was a lot of information. I just threw so much at you. So I would say I'm just going to step back. I'll let people digest all the info from the episode. And then in class or in general, if you have questions or you want to explore the topics more, I'm so happy to expand. I think there are lots of good conversations that can come from this. Um, do you have any questions about? No, I just, I, I like the idea of the empowerment piece. I like, uh, how giving kind of students the the lead on that, like, hey, I have an idea that this might benefit the class or something and having that taken seriously is kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, student jobs too. That's another thing I didn't include yeah. in there, but like assigning roles to students and letting them play a role in the space, like whether it's small things like turning off the lights or passing out papers. Oh, yeah. I, love that. I know. <laughs> or if it's something bigger, like, you know, doing the number talk or the warm up for the day, or like if the, you know, if your warm up is a formative assessment of my favorite, no, letting the student be the one who goes through the index card. I mean, there's so many ways that we can empower students and and we should, right? Like that's yeah. that's the goal. That's what we're here to do. Like if we're truly in it for the kids, then we've got to give the kids the tools and kind of step back and turn our own egos off and say like, this is not the Miss Duane show. This is like the, you know, room 16 show or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on another episode, Casey. This thank is, you. This Thanks is, for having me. <laughs> fun. You had no choice. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, next week, we're going to talk, hopefully, to Dr. Coloma. We'll see. I might just keep dropping his name. You know what's funny is he might not even be real. I might just become him. Yeah. Time. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He is very much real, and he's a great boss. Uh, thank you. Thank you. See you in class. Bye. <laughs>